You're listening to the Umami Podcast, conversations with producers, purveyors, and scholars exploring food choices we make as a culture. I'm Elise Ballard, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Chris Feifel. Thanks for being here. TNE Network. Elise, do you remember our conversation with Jared? I sure do. Now, in a library of work, there's going to be some conversations that are at the beginning of the library and some further along. This one, what is this, our third interview that we did? Mm, yes. Do you think we captured the, the, the bright-eyed freshness of, uh, of podcasters who want to talk to interesting people about sustainable food? I really do, Chris. I feel so inspired listening back to this episode. We, at that time, didn't even know what we were. We thought that this was going to be a podcast about wine, and that's incredibly interesting, but it wasn't the whole story. And then we found Umami. Anyway, so Jared's conversation is one that is still worth putting forward because it is very much Umami. It is very much about slow food, about attention and affection, to use another guest's words. Sure. And, and it, about some of those early notes on a sip of wine that just hit the front of your mm. tongue. We're not sure how it's going to develop in the, oh, in the back of the palate. Jay, am I done making that kind of metaphor or simile? No, you're not done. That has to come back. That's a really good one. <laughs> well, maybe we made some in this episode. Okay. All right. Let's listen to our conversation with Jared. Nice to meet nice. you, Jared. <laughs> Well nice, well, nice meeting you all up in Washington. That's great. That's wonderful. I've like I've really been enjoying Washington the last few times I've been up there. Right. Where um, where are you? Wonderful. Um, I'm down and right on the border. Actually, I'm in Oregon. Um, just looking at Mount Rainier, um, and uh, kind of close to the Columbia Willamette River, um, the Columbia that separates Oregon and Washington. And yeah, out here with my wife, my little daughter in a city called North Plains. Wonderful. Did you, um, do you have an affinity for the Northwest area and how does that uh, tie into, um, into your winemaking? Oh, well, I mean, absolutely. It's, you just have to be part of your habitat to make the wine is going with the, with all the flora and fauna here. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely been nice being here in, or- in Oregon, but it's, it's where I'm from. So it's, it's kind of a beautiful revival of coming back home after uh, long travels away, et cetera. So talk a little bit about your past, how you came to where you are now. Um... Well, I mean, there are I many born, ways you know. to answer that, but in terms <laughs> yeah. of, I know that you are from the North Willamette Valley. That's your home, and you traveled far and wide to learn about wine, and then found your way back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some some long journeys to South America. I was spending a lot of time in Argentina uh, with high elevation Malbec and a lot of time out in France and in the Bordeaux region wow. and um, been around Paris as well, planting vineyards there and then made it back here, which is, be- you know, which is beautiful. All that was with wine. And now I'm here with this, um, who's from Italy and back home in Oregon, which is nice. We found the perfect spot for us. That's great. And you have been very specific in your sort of, study of of the wine that you make um, within that region. You've told me something about uh, working your way up one hill. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I want to hear about this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, the the difference in our, in our Oregon climate is based more on elevation um, than anything. So very quickly things change. Um, it's something I noticed when I was younger, just seeing where snow would begin to 
to pop out in the Northwest. And so we're here in the snow zone. Um, usually above 800 feet is, is where it's snowing around here. Mm. And uh, it's an interesting scene that, you know, seeing the difference because within each couple hundred feet, it changes, you know, maybe just a couple of degrees, but the couple of degrees over a whole summer uh, changes the whole reality of what you can grow. And so we moved, you know, we, we moved here on uh, Mason Hill Road, which is just a r- real nice ridge in the valley. And there's vineyards starting from the bottom to around 300 feet that go all the way to 1,300 feet. Um, and then some that look towards Washington as well, um, rolling back on the other side, which has been interesting. So, so you're, you're playing with, you're playing um, or dealing with uh, different elevations and um, and then even different facing slopes. Is that a way to bracket um, the the type of uh, grapes you're growing, or are you finding different? Um, grapes are responding to the different elevations and so you can have a kind of a, a multiple going well yeah i mean in in both senses and that's what's beautiful you have the aspect where the grape will change its expression based on the growing degree days and the temperatures and uh, the, the the shifts between day and night temperatures um but it's also uh, the aspects as well. So if you're facing west, you're getting very, very warm sun in the in the afternoon, which for certain varietals will make them really aromatic and strong and heavy, um, which is interesting to play with that when you're figuring out where you're going to plant a vineyard. Um, so it's absolutely in both senses. Um, but I think with the elevation, you just have so much to gain. You have thicker skins and more extremes and um, not everything works and it's beautiful when it does and I just love how I love that kind of flow as well love the risk an example of that I think you mentioned when we first spoke was the wind patterns and the effects that that has on the way that grapes grow Uh, absolutely I mean it's uh, we're right by the Columbia Gorge, which is some of the strongest winds in the world consistently. Mm. Um, and we're at the mouth of it going up towards the ocean where the Willamette and the Columbia come together. Um, so it's interesting. It's just consistent. Uh, every every afternoon it comes through. You know, um, and throughout the night as well and dries things off, cools things down. Does mm. it add to uh, making stronger vines too, uh, like a hardier uh, harvest? Well, I think the most interesting thing that it does um, that people never think about is it closes um, closes the stomata sometimes. And so it goes into kind of a, the vine goes into a state where it's not going through um, the, the, the process of forming sugars. So it will thicken the skins of the grapes, but then still have a much lower alcohol. So it's kind of this beautiful situation where you have more content but of phenolics, but less alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's an interesting component of it because as I'm drinking wine, I'm more and more interested in wine with personality, but at very low alcohols. Wow, that's fascinating. So there are, there are two terms that I would like to revisit there. Um, one is, I think you said, stomata? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's what kind of allows the plant to, to interact um, with its uh, environment. So it's what it, uh, it takes um, the energy through the stomata. It's where the, well, actually, it's the, the water and the moisture. So it'll shut down when, let's say, for example, when it's really hot, 110 degrees, the stomata shuts down. And that's something that also happens when it's windy because the plant is supposed to lose uh, moisture when it's windy. So it tries to shut down. And in that process, it stops the ripening. Mm. Is that a specific part of the plant or of the grape? Or is it 
more like a skin. It's it's all over. Oh yeah, I think it's more part of the leaves. Okay. Um, yeah, shells on the leaves. Yeah. Okay. And then the other term you brought up, I, I, it has has escaped me already. <laughs> um, but stomata, that's the word of the day. I, yeah, I, I was like. wondering if that was like a, a like a an immune immune response that the plant had, just you know, in general because of this out, out external stimulus. But it seems like the wind is a way to um, circumvent having to have a high um, temperature that would create the same effect which also i imagine with high temperature you have now uh, discussions of irrigation and out here in the northwest how much of irrigation is uh, is a factor um, if you're not having to deal with those crazy high temperatures well i mean i think it's foolish if you're setting up the a project for irrigation in the northwest i think that <laughs> or should be almost should be the division of what what's possible and what's not, um, what plants you should plant in, in what areas. Because grapes, especially here, uh, it's absolutely something you can get away with not watering. Dry farming. You can baby yes. them. You can yeah, you can ba- you can baby them when they're when they're little. I mean when you first plant a plant, sometimes they're the size of a tomato plant. People don't realize how small vines are when they first start and then how vigorous they become. Mm. It's, you're planting a little noodle in the ground. It's pretty funny. <laughs> and you, you, you mentioned to me that you have a a new uh, vineyard, uh, Scapoose. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is such a wonderful project. Um, me and me and my friends, we um, got a piece of land together that we had we had found, which was. Um, it's in the middle of it's in the middle of the forest. It's a there's an overgrown nursery, and they're into uh, the nursery business. So it's been just incredibly beautiful. It's um, just having all the different sort of diversity that we have at the place. So we're doing fig breeding and uh, and grape you know grafting and growing and um, also going to different countries, finding different grapes, bringing them back and propagating them. Um, at this spot, but it's lovely to show you sometime. Absolutely, it's kind of hard to explain in words. But it, it's um, it looks at um, Portland and Mount Hood, Mount St. Helens. Um, you can see uh, Rainier as well, which is interesting mm. to see all the way up by you. Um, it, and where the rivers come together, which is really cool. So we just got the plants this year. Like these projects take forever. I mean, it's something people don't realize about viticulture. You talk about something and then you see its fruits in seven years. And mm. sure. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it, you just talk about it or you just do it and you leave it and you never see it again. Right. <laughs> they don't all come to fruition, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, most of them do, but who knows if I'm there or not. Right. You know? um, well, how is that baked into your approach? That this kind of longevity of an endeavor. You you know you're you're planting like you said you know a little noodle in the ground and and it'll ultimately um, become a you know a strong vine system. Um, so immediately you know you have um, a long time to see what your cause and effect is and. I, I'm really fascinated on how you decide to invest that kind of amount of time into the geography of an area. There's, mm. I imagine there's some soil samples, there's, you know, you can track where the sun's going to be, but there must be a little bit of intuition and artistry that is mixed in there as well. I, I'm not sure, but um, those kind of aspects fascinate me with what you, uh, what you handle on a daily basis. Yeah, it'd be lovely to to show you all. It's it's uh it's an interesting process starting from uh bare land to creating a vineyard or or beforehand even more interesting when you're looking for a certain stack of wine but there's no idea of where to find the land and you have to find it. Um <laughs> I think that's really interesting because you're actually look you're looking at the different geography, you're looking at the soil types and you're trying to match it to different aspects of the wine you want to make. Um, but it's a very slow process, like you said, and um, quite honestly, I'm still pretty young, so 
a lot of the decisions that I make, I get to see what happens in a long time. There's very long decisions. Um, but I've seen the successes and mistakes of a lot of other people too. And mm-hmm. um, that's kind of what I base most of my decisions on at the beginning. But I'm always trying something new and different and trying to learn because everything we do, it's marked by time and you know usually what year is planted and it's interesting everybody has the different styles of how they're going to plant on what rootstock what clone where from what country it's coming from um and that's equally beautiful Hmm. you talked when when we spoke before about um the sort of opportunity to study what happens in a year through wine and uh, to study differences year over year. Um, We, I think when we had this conversation originally, were uh, talking specifically about 2020 where uh, the West was faced with a whole bunch of fires and and taint was an issue. Um, But talking in a larger sense, can you talk a little bit about that opportunity to... um, Package a year in wine, basically. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember when we were talking about that, and it's interesting because you absolutely can revisit um, those those years that you lived and the memories that you had, and you don't have to create the wine to do that. That's what's beautiful. It's mm. something that is dated. Um, in a, t- in a time and a place and a moment when you tried it or when you tried it with somebody else. Um, and the same thing for myself that, of course, I'm following the seasons and remember the vintages and how they were made. But I think the beautiful part is when you get to revisit memories when you're creating it or when you first tried that wine and you can um, revisit that moment again, um, Something I don't know if it's something that you've experienced or explored, but it's one of the only type of uh, crafts, um, foods, beverages, memories, pieces of art that you can consume, um, that you can also age um, other than vinegar and, and other ferments. So it's it's pretty beautiful in that aspect. Mm. Can you decide on what that sweet spot is for aging a wine? Do you get a feel for it, or is there some sort of metric that goes in where you know this will be good in three years and it'll have a it'll have a three to seven year sweet spot? And do those sweet spots cycle through where it goes dormant and then comes back again? I'm I'm kind of in the in the dark about that. Yeah, that is a good question. Um, there's Absolutely. And I mean, in a world where we all have different tastes, there's absolutely no, no sweet spot. Um, Nonetheless, I I think that sometimes when you try to target something um, for, you know, three years or 10 years or or 20 years, I think you absolutely could miss out on the potential Mm -hmm. of this one. But what I try to get across really quickly is that I don't think, you know, there's, best moment, but it's always just open up the bottle and trying to understand uh, where it's at. It's beautiful that it can make a lot of travels. Um, it could be where the wine came from, even when you get wine from different countries that we are nowadays. And how incredible is that? That journey from that winery to um, the, the shop that you get it or wherever you, wherever you pick it up. Um, so when you when you think about the when you think about time, I would just never think a bottle's too old, um, mm. and that's something I would just try to scratch as hard as you can because it's really easy to just open up you know yeah. open up a bottle and and not let it age. I mean, it's what ninety percent of us do. But if you can let something age, and especially if I'm kind of when I was talking about having some sort of memory with what you're getting, I mean. Hopefully you have you you interact with somebody or you go and you meet some winemaker you go to you go to something where you connect with the wine you're drinking and you get a case you get two cases 
you drink it over time, you remember that moment or something right. from your wedding or something like something beautiful um, that you don't want to drink those too quick. Hold on to them. Um, you can drink bottles a hundred years old or they're older and mm. you'll be surprised the results. It's just patience. It's kind of like a, a nice um, gift or a, like a present you give yourself to be able to drink it over time and then experience how it's changing through, through um, you know, that length. And so I, I never really thought about that. Was, um, and I always knew I, if I was buying wine, I should always buy a case. I said I, it was always a bottle or two. And now you're convincing me that I need to buy in bulk and have it around and drink it through its ages. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the better one that, you know, you understand that it does that and that you enjoy it. I mean, it's it's beautiful, but at the same time, I mean, when you go and you buy that wine, go and do it with uh, someone close to you or go have fun or do something where, I don't know, it means something to you as well, because it's kind of another, another chance. They all hold memories too. I mean, same thing, you know, if you guys are all really interested in wine, come out here and make some wine. Mm. Um, it's just, that's the, that's the beauty of it. I think mm. is, um, having a, having some sort of attachment to it. Um, I don't know why. I guess that's why I love it so much. Well, I can't think of any other beverage, uh, just in my experience, that I remember as singularly as certain bottles of wine shared with certain people. Um, or, you know, a, a festival that I was walking around uh, drinking from the same bottle all through the night, and that was just my beverage. But, you know, I don't think about that with um, uh, a scotch or a beer. You know, I remember a few choice ones here and there, but... Bottles of wine seem to almost um, stamp an occasion. Yeah, very much agreed. Very much agreed. Yeah, every once in a while, a scotch or you know, a rum or something too. But those can age wonderfully. But wine is beautiful. It's so alive. Yeah, I. Uh, it 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 makes me want to ask you about. Um, the littlest that goes into a bottle of wine and the most that goes into the bottle of wine and that sort of juxtaposition of those two things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the littlest, it's very simple. Um, the littlest is the winemaking. Mm. And the most is the grapes mm. that you grew or that your best friend grows. I mean, I would say everybody who really, really loves making wine and knows how to make wine knows that's the truth. <laughs> and anybody with a big ego that thinks they can turn crap into gold, um, I don't believe it. <laughs> and you taste it. And I think that's, most, it's very simple. I mean, I could talk about like labels or, mm different sorts of things, but I mean, no, and labels are beautiful. I mean, there's different aspects or, you know, growing the grapes or, but in making the wine, it's such a short period comparatively to, uh, growing the grapes. Mm. Right. There is, there is kind of a, um, uh, an intense moment, it seems a, a ramp up once you start picking the grapes and doing the process, everything leading up to that is time consuming and, could be arduous and, and dependent on seasons and, and all these other variables that come in. Yeah, it's the heart of the whole um, the whole art, honestly, is the the agriculture and the um in the growing season. But it's interesting that the winemaking is always kind of seemingly the star. It's uh mm. kind of like the most romantic protagonist hmm. um and i know that because that was what i was most interested in doing at the beginning mm. thought, oh my gosh this is the coolest i want to be a winemaker i'm going to be a winemaker in napa valley and it's going to be great hmm. we're going to fly around on helicopters or something. <laughs> um but i realized that that's not really the deal and not actually you know making making wine and a lot of winemakers would definitely agree with me it ends up becoming a, a bunch about logistics um and that's about it and then 
your winemaking, you know, when you get to do it, it's like three months and that's about it. And, um, yeah. Well, it, you know, like a lot of good pieces of artwork, um, there's, uh, the creative moments that happen, you know, whether that's over a, a day, a week, a month, you know, or so, um, depending on how pro- prolonged that activity is. But it's also one of my favorite parts about it, you know, even re- recording music or, or writing something, you know, the poem's going to last forever, but you wrote it in, you know, this small period of time. You made this piece of artwork in this small period of time. Those those yeah. kind of dynamics I really relate to in the creative process, and it's neat to hear them. Uh, seems like sewn into the fabric of of making wine. Yeah, that's it, and it's a good point. I mean, you kind of do bring out the the fact that there is a lot of quick decisions that you are making um, in the wine making process with the grapes, how they come in, what's going on, um, what sort of style you're going to make, and like when to pick, how long to keep them on their skins, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all based on weather, too, mm-hmm. um, which is the most interesting as well, because you have, you know, your different materials and different states that you're at the, I don't know, at the mercy of, of rain. And uh, mm. it's, it's pretty beautiful. Yeah, it's a nice, it's, it's a fun end of the season. I always like the, I always like the harvest, actually. Are there any other activities, not to get off topic so much, but um, any any other activities that you grew up doing or involved with now that are also tied closely to the weather or some sort of prolonged duration that, you know, like um, that, that maybe you saw you had an aptitude for this sort of uh, this sort of endeavor? Yeah, I mean, when I was. I think just the. The extremes of the climate, like I like how it changes so much, um, and it's very diverse. The things that go into making wine and to growing grapes, um, they're almost all opposites, and they can all still be connected, which is really mm. it, very very interesting because you know you're very very solo in the in, in the vineyard out in the middle of the country to perhaps being in an event with tons and tons of people having to present uh, present a wine or do a tasting or trying to stand behind uh, really something you've been working on for a very, very long time at the justice and at the judgment of who knows who. And it's kind of crazy as well trying to present that stuff. You have no idea what people are going to think. But it's all kind of nice too it's very very diverse but i'm trying to think about the the weather being outside i mean i've I've had a lot of different experiences and different Mm. different jobs that might have kind of pushed me in this direction of of enjoying great growing but the closest thing to it is absolutely um poetry or or art or design I think you yeah. mentioned at one point uh, the similarity to playing the piano. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I mean, you have so many different choices. You can definitely be connected with the, the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, part, it's part of it, too. It's, it, I bet you there's a lot of uh, winemakers who are pianists um, just because of how the season falls because the winter there's there's not much to do um, <laughs> when you're when you're growing grapes. I mean, you could you could label the wines or you know try to sell them, um, but there's it's kind of dead uh, December January. So you got to pick up something. I think piano's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Great, yeah. I mean that makes that makes sense. If so, so what I'm time. getting is uh, when we come for a visit, we get we get to get our hands dirty a little bit. There will be no helicopter rides, but we may get a sonata played for us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Where we're going. We're in that, yeah, we're in that order. Happen. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> in that order. That would be great. <laughs> um, is there any lore 
around harvest time, um, picking grapes mm. on a full moon, or any kind of rituals uh, that are that are have been baked into this throughout different cultures. Oh, absolutely. Um, in different cultures, specifically, I can think about one that I studied um, is in the Andes Mountains, and um, and they always do offerings to the land before the harvest or on a full moon um, where they'll dig a hole and they'll give all their, well, their, their bountiful harvest. So whatever they have, um, if it's corn, if it's, if it's fruit, um, and then also whatever new things come up too, you know, nowadays, who knows, they're probably giving a Pachamama like a cell phone or something. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you can just, I, th- I think here um, in, in Oregon, we're toying with the weather at the very end. Um, the moon doesn't always show, and maybe it doesn't show mm. for a month and a half. And it's cloudy, and it's rainy, and it's cold. Um, I don't know. I have I With the weather here, the harvest, I definitely don't follow um, the moon. I'm more trying to follow the sun and watching out for the rain. Um, but with the pruning, um, on the other hand, that's something that in Italian culture and that, you know, you, you, you prune on the, on the moon cycle and in a lot of cultures. So we've been doing that, um, usually on a descending, uh, full moon. Wow. Mm. And the, the, the lore wow. being that doing so has what effect? Um, well, it's not really folklore, but um, it's just the usually related. It's usually related to sap flow based on uh, more or less the moon and the currents and the tides that are controlled by that. So it would be probably closestly related to atmospheric pressure of like something else that people understand scientifically, but <laughs> right. uh, so not at all lore science. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, maybe yeah. one of those, those, um, those, uh, techniques that, um, a long time ago they figured out was the best. And now we mm. can put the science to it and say, well, it's because, you know, this is happening. That's happening. The, the function didn't change throughout millennia, but the, <laughs> you know, but the reason why yeah, we absolutely. know it works, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Do you do you have any like? Uh, do you have a, your favorite pair of shoes that you always prune in, or your you know your, any of those little idiosyncrasies you carry with you as a maker? Um, yeah, I have this one. I have this one thing I don't care, but I want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of my friends. Uh, for my wedding, he gave me this, uh, it's like a, a pocket dial watch that you can hold up to the sun and it tells you what hour it is. And um, it, sh- it shines it on the ground. Whoa. It's so cool. Yeah, so I was kind of thinking about bringing that thing out into the mix, but I haven't. Um, <laughs> to think. No, I mean, you know, you, 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 you have your, yeah. Yeah. You have your lucky underwear and everything like that, but I don't think it's attached to pruning. So, (laughs) grooming, not pruning. (laughs) Wow. Well, that brings up an interesting point too. I think about, um, you know, tradition in wine, the good ones and the bad ones. Um, It seems like there are uh, traditions that have shifted, evolved, or some have completely died out. Um, What are some of the traditions that are are sort of most deeply applicable or deeply rooted for you to use that available metaphor um well i think the tradition most importantly for me now is that it's in a bottle um that it's in a bottle and that it has a cork Mm -hmm. and that i get to open it and i get to enjoy it and that it's made from someone not a financial group or I don't know an insurance group or a pharmaceutical group or a doctor or you know the owner of Pixar or Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan (laughs) somebody who makes wine somebody who makes wine in the 
grow the grapes, and that's what they love. I'm not Andrea Bocelli, but I'm a winemaker. Mm. I mean, it's things like, I feel like that's kind of the, the base of it. Oh, that makes so much sense. You can't be... You can't be a, a weekender in in making wine. You this is a thing. This is a, a long big game. deal. It's a this long is a, game. This is the long game. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. You know, it makes me you think. Can always, of, you can always get involved. Like uh, you know, like I was saying, you always you can make wine in, at your home in this beautiful way. But you're not only going to drink your own bottles. You're going to drink those mm. of people who commit their lives to it. I imagine mm. if you really love it and you start understanding it. Because it's uh, it's a beautiful way to get to know different regions and different years and different people and different forms of art. Well, how, how um, nice is it, it, it that it's uh, it seems that the sharing is also a major component. You want to make your own wine, but you want other people to try it. You want you really want someone to to you know um, enjoy the efforts that you put into it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. You put a bottle of wine on the table and you kind of, well, it matters if you're paying attention, but if you are, you feel naked and you're like, oh my goodness, what are they going to think? Um, <laughs> especially the weirder, the weirder it gets. Um, right now I'm standing around, I'm walking around the little wine studio I have and I'm standing around some stuff that's really weird. And, mm. you know, when people try it the first time, I'm like, all right, this is, the craziest experiment that I've ever tried. You want to try this thing? And they try it. And it's like, a, I don't know. I always think it's going to be a 50, 50, but usually everybody likes it. But every time I, every time I look at it, it just looks so funky. <laughs> Weird as in what? Well, I think lately I've been trying to age wine um, and thinking about it more like cheese and um, looking at it in aspects of, uh, looking at the bacteria that forms and looking at how it ages the wine and what it creates. So not trying to work against the nature of how um, wine evolves over time, uh, using mm. oxygen or using floris like sherry or using Britannomyces um, mm. to try to see how things interplay. So it's, that's kind of what I mess with in the wine studio lately. Okay. I had a wine recently yeah. that um, uh, apparently they had used chestnut flowers as the sort of sulfuring agent. Is that an example of something you're talking about? I never tried that. Was it good? No. <laughs> I mean, in my opinion. <laughs> but I, I'm getting a little bit... I, with that, I'm getting a little bit of um, a wizard... Um, with mm. components to make spells. I'm getting a little mad scientist feel. I don't, you know, <laughs> mad scientist feels a little bit slandering, so I'm going with wizard or magician, but there's these components. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I can't wait to see the place, but with, it, I know it doesn't look like a laboratory, I imagine, but I imagine <laughs> laboratory stuff is going on all over the place out there. I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much the idea. It's little magic potions. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really fun, but not using any sort of ingredients, just grapes. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes apples, um, pears, plums, you know, things that are on the farm. Mm -hmm. but, Does that, uh, speaking of apples and pears and plums, are, are there uh, like companion plants that are used as you, as you grow grapes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you don't want to take a, a big piece of land and turn it into one single crop. They all interplay with each other, their root systems and where they're at. Um, a big one, I mean, it's probably not exciting. I could talk about, you know, the mycorrhizal layers and, and fungi that could be fun, but I think a big one that people should just realize is light in the exception. I mean, where the tree is and where the plant is and where the beams are and what is growing and how the sun can hit it. That's mm. the most interesting for me. Um, so what's when, an example of that? Like, um, um, well, you could think about it. Like here'd be a beautiful example would be maybe on, uh, maybe grow a, a tree. You could grow, uh, you're talking about nuts. Maybe you could grow a, a nut tree. You could, 
grow hazelnuts, uh, or you could grow, I was just say that hazelnuts, you grow a vine next to it that climbs up next to it and you grow peas underneath it. Mm. Um, uh, there's tons of different examples, but at the same time, I mean, I think about a hazelnut, maybe we kind of shade everything out and make up the, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the hazelnut, but you, know, you just got to kind of d- design different layers of, um, of like a little unit of land. So things that grow different heights. So you can do that in your garden as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can grow things at the bottom, you can grow things at the top. So I think it's an interesting thing to look at. So companion, your question, uh, companion plants with vineyards. Um, well, typically, uh, lavender and um, roses. That was roses. kind of historically. Um, but I think as of lately for me, I've really been enjoying some mustard harvest, um, mm. been enjoying carrots, uh, radishes, um, things like that in the vineyard. It's kind of more in the rose, um, not just as a, like a beauty project. Right. I wonder about, this is a, a coming from the perspective of, of someone who likes to cook and eat. Um, I've heard if it grows together, it goes together. So if you plant a carrot next to your grapes, the resulting wine would be really delicious with carrots? (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Okay. I mean, I can think of of a lot of good dishes with carrots. Yeah, it depends on how you prepare it, I guess. Good wine goes Um, with almost anything. Is is that a saying? I don't know if that's a saying. (laughs) Maybe that's true. are the, are, the, the one that, yeah, but the one that's hard to pair is radish. I mean, I radish. love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something, you know, it cleans the palate, and it's it's beautiful, and a lot of times it has a texture, and it's refreshing, but I can't think about pairing it with wine. But yeah, that's a, a tough one. one. Maybe, a white, maybe a white wine. I'm, I'm feeling a lighter wine there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like I mean, so, a, a sweeter wine. Like, you know, radish doesn't Ooh, have sweetness. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that would, you know, yeah. allow for. But the other thing I've heard is is really hard to pair is artichoke. Yeah, I don't know about that one. <laughs> don't know that would be hard. That, yeah, that would be yeah. That would be yeah. With, <laughs> yeah, with, with the sauce, like yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Are, are there any uh, are there any creatures that go with pairing wines? Uh, going from bees to moles, the ones that you know things that don't help and things that do help with uh, propagating your vines. Absolutely. And it's something so interesting um, to be in touch with all the different animals and how they interact. Because in the vineyard, I mean, there's so, there's so much going on, but also in the forest uh, as an incredible ecosystem. Um, and I wasn't used to it. I mean, to be honest, I, I feel really connected now to all this, but I moved from a 20 to 30 square meter apartment in a mm. big city mm. to here, to Oregon. Um, so it was kind of a big shock to me. I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. <laughs> I w- waking up, there'd be a pack of 40, uh, or a herd, a herd of 40 elk um, <laughs> going through, you know, going through the, the fields. Um, so here, the different animals, some are, <clears throat> the first ones that come in are the moles. They're mm. big, they make the big holes, everybody gets pissed about them in their yard. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of cool, but I... You know, not a not a huge fan if they get one of your new vines and just take it under. Yeah. Um, but then there's other ones. There's the voles. They're field mice. Um, they come into meadows and pastures. Um, and another one um, are nematodes. Um, I'm trying to think. Those are kind of the the main ones that get in the vineyard that can that mess you up. Yeah. That you have to take care of. Yeah. And mm. But it's it's interesting how nature can actually combat it if you if if you let it and if you invite it. Um, different sorts of predatory birds or different sorts of species that nematodes don't like. Um, there's all sorts of ways to work with it, and they aerate the soil as well. So you, know, you just let it go. You know, I just let it fly. Mm. They'll just. So is it is there acceptable casualties that you have with a with a harvest? Um, not to put percentages on it, but you know uh, a certain amount or 
or either not coming to fruition or had uh, you know animals get to them or a blight is that is that mm. that's something mm. right um yeah absolutely and especially because all the vineyards that if i was just you farm with uh natural oils and all organic so it's at eight in certain years it's very very difficult maybe you don't get a harvest but lately, it's been uh, really favorable, and especially learning very well how to work with it and how to work by hand. It does make so, me think about what, what, like, what is the risk of something on the scale of phylloxera, which I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly. Um, but there was a big blight that took place. Um, is something like that possible again? Catastrophic. And, yeah. yeah. And are you, I don't know, is an individual vineyard able to protect against it yeah. as well? Yeah, there's signs if it, is it coming or not. Um, absolutely. It could happen again. Um, you hear about it all the time when you're, um, in, when you're in agricultural circles. And mm-hmm. some of the pests and the names are crazy and just crack up laughing. Um, one was called the, the Suzuki. <laughs> and uh, I... He's a bunch you of wild kids. Think about like what it, yeah, like what it looks like. I think about like a <laughs> racing motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Because the Suzuki is doing Napa donuts Valley. in our oh, vineyard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, there's phylloxera was devastating. Yeah. It, it was absolutely devastating, and it took um, almost all the best vineyards in the world. Um, and almost all the vineyards in the world. Um, there's still vines pre phylloxera and there's a lot of examples of vines that survived past that, but mm. it's interesting. So like the the plague for for grapevines mm. and incredible those sort of moments. But I think now um phylloxera is gonna actually come through the Willamette Valley and that will be devastating for certain vineyards. Um and people don't talk about it too much because it's not something that happens right away and um but it will uh absolutely the people who did not plant on rootstocks um in clay soils and the uh for instance in the dundee hills and things like that i think mm. it's gonna be a be a real problem so it, it's it's coming yeah it's already it's already uh here in oregon and washington um it's actually something that came from the united states and then was imported into Europe, which wow. is kind of interesting. So, it's a matter of um, I don't want to digress too much, but this is huge. I mean, uh, this it's a matter of why is it inevitable? Like, why is it why is it coming? Well, it's it's kind of like um, some of those other pests that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about moles and poles and nematodes, and there's also phylloxera, and it's part of the soil. And it's part of the makeup. Um, so it happens in uh, happens in cycles. So you have to trust that it happens for a reason uh, as well. Mm. Um, it's not about trying to make phylloxera extinct or vines extinct, but there's different sorts of rootstocks that go fine, and you take different risks at different times depending on what your soil's like and looking at it and understanding it. It's kind of a it's an interesting topic. I mean, it happens. I guess a hundred years ago, it seems like, but just about then. So, yeah. But now we're wow. still dealing with it. Do you see indicators for uh, something major like that, and even for um, the minor instances of, of uh, something else that might um, hurt or help your harvest? Um, what, what kind of indicators can you see in surrounding lands, and maybe even on your own lands? Yeah. The biggest indicator um, that you see with some of these pests are how your plants express themselves and how they grow and how they form the architecture. Um, but the signs that I see in the vineyard um, aren't usually that there's phylloxera or that there's these bad, you know, bad pests. There's some pests in the vineyard, but they're okay. I mean, it's all right. They're living off leaves. Uh, then it doesn't affect the grape harvest. Um, so I most of the things I see are, are kind of good, you know, good signs. Like, ah, I mean, they're hard to deal with, but like birds, birds come in and you know, the fruit's almost right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's time to get ready to pick. 
Mm. Okay. So it's just sort of reading, reading how, how, all of it, how, how it's all reacting to <laughs> what's happening there. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it makes sense. I mean, yeah. Birds aren't going to eat an unripe parry. They can go anywhere they want. Do they, do they like it just annoyingly sooner than you're ready to pick? Like it doesn't seem like the birds really like it when it's like, ah, oh, it's past picking time. That I'm not even touching that vine. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it a lot, especially in the cherries. They like the cherries before I like them. They get them all mm. every year. Yeah. I mean, I'll get you know, yeah. I'll get some, but it's so quick that harvest. But the you know, with, to fall back a little bit and excuse me for mm. not answering your question directly, but you asked me uh, how much I expect to lose during the year um, of the, the harvest. It happens kind of on two sides and does happen in the vineyard because you are watching uh, the birds and what's happening and looking at the climate and seeing how things are ripening, but also how much are the animals eating? Um, and there's certain areas that you might have to pick sooner because of that. And that's one of the mm. biggest factors that you're dealing with growing grapes is that the animals. Okay. Right. Right. Um, what, yeah, I mean, it, what what um, um, what methods do you have to either stave them off, or it, it seems like you're okay with uh, with them eating off the the leaves or so. Um, but are there bigger animals that are that are trouble? Like a fence doesn't take care of it, or or netting for birds. Um, what are the steps that you take to to mitigate that? Um, well. To start with the little ones, I mean, birds, people use nets or sometimes they use, uh, like sound makers. Like some people swear on like a certain terrible radio station that scares <laughs> birds away. Um, some people have, you know, flashing lights or crazy things. Pretty much nothing works, but that's okay. the beauty of it. That's why I'm telling you, I'm like, okay, the birds are eating time to pick. I mean, yeah. there's no other choice <laughs> um, unless you want to. You know, you could put umbrellas on top of grapes if you're crazy enough. But it's just, uh, I, I think with bigger animals, though, I mean, elk come through or deer, but that's why you have to have the fence um, in Oregon, which is just terrible. It's my least favorite part about vineyards um, because I love elk and I love mm. seeing them. And I love leaving them huge swaths of habitat um, and admiring them. But they can eat a lot of grapes mm. um, <laughs> very very quickly and they'll come right at the right time too um, oh. especially with late ripening grapes because they're making a uh, track back from the coast ah oh, and they're oh, sweet wow. and they're yeah interesting yeah it's, it's it's really it's really interesting to see um the other animals i mean we see them I can send you some photos. I mean, we see bears and uh, cougars and things in the in the property, but um, they're never close by. Maybe we'll hear some coyotes. I don't know how. Yeah, yeah. just some frogs. I'm going to switch directions here a little bit and um, talk about. I want I want to ask you about sort of the expected taste of wine the big bold reds and the sort of parkerization um that i hope we're coming out of in this era of natural wine whether or not that's a problematic term um how does that how how does that you know when you're doing when you're doing as little as possible to make your wine you're letting your wine express what those grapes are letting those grapes express themselves um, what happens to to make everybody uh, expect a big bold red? Um, and what happens to sort of get us out of that? Yeah, I mean it's just two completely different styles, and uh, they're they're both valid. Mm. Um, it just happens to be that a lot of the wines when I really, really dove into the viticultural aspects and the winemaking processes. The most beautiful ones are the naked ones and the very honest ones and um, the soft stories, but the interesting stories, those are the ones that I love. Mm. I didn't need to be forced into uh, a powerful wine or to real oaky wine. Um, 
that doesn't have much interest to me and it really standardized the wines. But it's valid some big, bold, strong wines. Um, I love things like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and in certain climates, that's just what it makes. It's just things not that... what, um, what I drink every day and I don't actually even think it's healthy. Got it. So there are some grapes that just make big, bold wines, certain regions, certain whatever, but uh, it's the the sort of forcing wine to be more of that or to, to fit a, a, a particular flavor profile um, that you shouldn't have to do. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, just to try to standardize all the tastes would be quite a shame. Um, if people like strong wines, that's that's wonderful. I mean, I like a lot of content as well. Um, I just like wines that are made honestly and that don't have additives. Mm. Um, I also don't like wines that only focus on um, oak and don't have content and personality of where they're from and the work people have done to grow those grapes. It's a shame. Yeah. So for somebody somebody um, listening to this, listening to uh, talk right now and on their way home are going to stop off and get wine, what would you suggest? Not not for what wine to drink, but what where should they go? What, what kind of uh, store or shop should they stop into uh, right before they miss their exit? Well, I mean, I don't know a lot of shops in Seattle um, per se. Uh, I've been to some, um, but you I've know Mark. To, yeah, I know Mark. I know Marks, and Marks has a wonderful shop, and would be a nice one to go if you're in in Seattle. Um, and yeah, where did we go? We went to De La Ronti at Pike's mm. Market. Mm-hmm. Um, really like that Italian appetizers and things. That was good. Um, but yeah, I just think the best thing is to start to. Um, Maybe just to try new things and to think about it. And that's the best way to start. Um, Whatever is the most enjoyable experience for you. Uh, For me, nowadays, I like to really trade people wines because I make wines. Um, (laughs) Maybe you like to go and uh, trade winemakers, uh, I don't know, a book that you wrote or a movie you're making um, Mm. or however you want to interact with the world. But as far as the shop goes, I mean, <clears throat> I like to su- support the same, um, I guess, dream that, that I would love to live. So the best idea for me is supporting people who are um, supporting them, them themselves in a respectful way um, mm. and getting to live their dreams and uh, small business owners. Mm, I think small that's, uh, yeah, I think it's a beautiful way to live and a beautiful way to continue as well for younger generations to have opportunities to have small endeavors instead of um, just drinking wines that are made anything over, you know, half a million bottles. I mean, <laughs> why? <Yeah. laughs> right. Nobody yeah. likes ma- nobody <laughs> likes making it. Well, and I don't think anybody likes drinking it either. So why does it happen? Right. Right. Usually, <laughs> usually because of price and, um, mm. you know, and I, and I understand that, but, Sometimes when you're starting to dive into wine a little bit more, uh, bottles are a little bit more expensive. Mm-hmm. But you have to imagine what it takes to make it. And imagine how many bottles it would take to make it and support yourself and a family. Yeah. Because um, it's, it's part of it as well. So it's a little bit different than somebody using slave labor and who knows where. Um, my apologies. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> there's an inference there. I think I'm. <laughs> um, I um yes, I I think that's something we we've, we've discussed a lot, which is oh yeah, you know, there in Seattle are are these bottle shops sprouting up all over, and the pandemic maybe was an impetus for that. Um, but lots of opportunities to buy from a purveyor as opposed to a big grocery store. Right. Um, wine, especially, and and uh, offerings at some restaurants are, are are opening up too. There are 
um, you know, wines from Croatia and from, you know, Estonia and, and new places, as well as just uh, departures from the traditional Appalachian system and that sort of thing. But I think at the end of the day, and the reason that we want to talk to you is 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 that knowing who has produced the thing, knowing a little thing about how it's been produced is is what um, is a mark of distinction, a mark of quality, and is worth your while. So much effort went into it. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Yeah, I mean, there is there is effort that a lot of a lot of people do, and a lot of winemakers do, and for every profession. Um, the beautiful thing about wine is it's a easy one to share. Um, and it's easy, it's easy one to bring to the table and to share and to talk about and to spur conversation um, and inspiration and different philosophies and maybe love. Who knows? I thought about that the other day. But how cool is it that maybe I'm part of somebody's love story? That's pretty mm. sweet. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> You're part That's of my cool. love story. I, uh, I can yeah. attest to that. <laughs> I mean, statistically pretty, speaking, it must well, have that, happened, Jared. Right. <laughs> well, imagine that. And that's definitely a good reason to get a case of wine, you know? I mean, yeah. they're like, yeah, I remember. I met this, uh, you know, the love of my life. And now I drink the wine all the time. Perfect. Mm, <laughs> <laughs> well, can can you tell us um, uh, just some details about your winery, uh, you know, name and, and uh, how long you've been doing it for? And just uh, just kind of promote yourself a little bit here. Um, the winery name is Grape Inc. Uh, it's the blend between uh, wine growing and art. And we moved to Oregon in 2018 and, and started that. Um, but I've been making wine since I was 21. Um, and then... Yeah, we're here. Yeah, are are we special by being able to maybe uh, take a look around your place, or do you uh, give tours? Do people come there for tastings? Do you hold events or anything? Um, no, we don't do tastings. Uh, we mostly just focus on the, you know, the crafting, the ideas, the production, the growing. Um, but I've just been noticing that getting to do, you know, walk people around the farm and share, and share the place has been really nice. Um, so we're starting to do it little, little by little um, as people have been asking, especially um, if people propose it and mm-hmm. if they seem like people we would like to meet because that's part of it. I don't want to uh, pull my hair out meeting, um, <laughs> meeting somebody who's spending my, spending my day with. Yeah, you uh, don't have time. I'd really like to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but there's so many interesting people in the world, and mm. there's so much opportunity to meet each other and to to meet new people. Um, it's incredible. I mean, and that's also inspiration that you can take throughout the day. So, um, but and I'm not saying these are selective tastings or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, when people reach out, it's you know absolutely beautiful. But um, it happens only like that. So. Okay. But in terms of um, getting a grape ink bottle of wine, um, I know around Seattle there are a few places. The bottle that we're drinking right now we picked up at Harry's Fine Foods. Um, And I know Mark Papineau carries some of your wine as well. There are a few places around Seattle. Does it exist outside? I'm I'm sure it it exists in Oregon and um, beyond, but what are a few other places? places where your wine goes? Um, well, I always bring a case of wine to my wife's family's house in Padova. They don't sell it, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. It, we, we don't do too... We, we don't really work in too many different markets, actually. We sell um, some wines to a couple of different cities. And not in Oregon, actually. Um, mm. Very rarely do I uh, sell sell wine in Oregon, even though mm. I'm from here. Um, <laughs> give a lot to my family and um, share a lot with my friends. So but if we come we, across, a, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, but no, but I mean, we sell it in New York City, um, mm. 
in Boston, um, in San Francisco, in Seattle. And that's it. Neat. A little bit in Portland. Yeah. People come over to the barn and come to the wine studio. Well, I got to say, it, it's really been something special when we're thinking about the journey that a bottle of wine uh, takes and to be able to drink your wine and talk to you about those journeys and what went into it. This has been a, a pretty unique experience for myself, uh, at least. I mean, I, I don't know if you live in this world so much, but this is uh, this is a little bit special for me right now. Yeah, special for me too. Absolutely. So good. So exactly what we want to get across on this podcast. We want to help people get to know uh, the people who make what they consume. That's the larger goal. And um, specifically with wine. So, Jared, you were the first person I thought of to speak to about how it is how it is made, how grapes are grown, and how wine is made. And I sure appreciate all that you've shared here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's nice getting to have a free flowing conversation with you all and uh, spraying some ideas in my head as well. So, thank you for <laughs> taking the time. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jared. Oh, I never, I didn't ask you though. So did you try the wine? We are drinking it right now. We're experiencing about halfway it right through. now. Yeah. Nice. Well, I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you for including yeah. me. It's cool. I mm. mean, what I had, a, I had a really, I had a really crazy day and uh, it was really cool to end doing this actually. Thank Yay. you. Oh, good. I'm so glad Great. to hear that. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a good little surprise. Well, I'm going to, I actually am going to go have dinner. I'm okay, gonna, go I'm, do that. Haven't eaten this. Yeah, bon appetit, take care, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Jared. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Well, so I'm, I'm excited. I, I love how passionate this guy is. I, so I really, good. Jared is, he's so precise, and, yeah. and he is so... Uh, studious is that a word i mean for sure and and he he also knows when to just give up to to the weather you can you can't mm. these things you can't change you can't stop uh, you know certain factors from coming in and you got to figure out how to live with it how to roll with the punches and deal with the the changes that you have no control over and i like that i, I like that aspect of his perspective on this as well yeah it it makes it more Precious is the wrong word, but it makes that wine more special. It's it's indicative of so many things, so many environmental factors and yeah. um, scientific factors. Yeah, yeah. That I, long I game. Really love that, that long. It's you got to respect game. the long game. Damn. You know, you, so you much tell, work. You tell your folks that uh, I'm starting a vineyard, and we're probably going to see a grape in about seven years from now. <laughs> Say, I, I wish you would have went into school for advertising. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that it, that was so insightful. The Umami Podcast is produced by TNE Networks. Find us anywhere you get podcasts and on Instagram at The Umami Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out our website where you can find tons more resources about today's subject. While you're there, consider supporting us with a small monthly donation or one-time gift. And please tell a friend about us. You're listening to the TNE Network.